Morning, everybody. Lively, energetic crowd saying hi to each other today. I love that. Nothing better than to interrupt that to make you listen to me for a little while. Um, We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time, and chances are that you've noticed at this point, Jesus, as he speaks, says a variety of things that can kind of cause a variety of different reactions in us. So sometimes, a lot of the time, actually, Jesus will say something, and it'll give you like a feeling of comfort or peace, maybe a feeling of like inspiration and excitement. Sometimes he'll say something that gives you a feeling of, of conviction that makes you feel like, oh, man, I really need to like examine myself or think about this. And then sometimes he says something that is either completely confusing or borderline upsetting that just makes you go like, what? What, Jesus? Why would you say that? Today is one of those. Maybe the biggest one of those in this gospel. So I want to start by just kind of pulling the Band-Aid off and reading the whole passage we're going to look at today um, so that we can just deal with this. Because this is the kind of thing that when you encounter it in your Bible reading, it makes you just go, what? Why, why is Jesus talking like this? So jump in with me. This is Matthew 15, starting at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So like, it ends well. But along the way, it's like, oof, did Jesus just call that woman a dog? You're like, no, he didn't. He called her people group dogs, right? It's painful. All along this story, we've been seeing Jesus heal everybody. And then all of a sudden, this woman comes up to him for healing. And first he ignores her, it seems like, for a while. And then when he finally does speak to her, he says something that to our ears sounds incredibly insulting and off-putting. And so if you're reading this story, like I said, you hit it and you you hit that part and you're like, what? What is Jesus doing? And it's particularly problematic because this is in Matthew. So for many of you, this might even be the part of the Bible reading plan that you still are like making it through. You know what I mean? You haven't given up yet. You're in a gospel. And so you hit stories like this and most of us either just go like, oh, that's weird. There must be something going on there and you just keep going and then just try to remember that if you tell your non-Christian friend to read the Bible to make sure you tell them to skip Matthew 15 when they get to it. But it's uncomfortable for us to read. And so here's the thing. As is often the case with these stories, with 2,000 years of distance and a completely different culture and a different language, there are things that we miss and there is more going on than meets the eye. And as is always the case with Jesus, when you understand what he's doing in this story, it's not only not offensive and not off-putting, but it's actually incredibly beautiful and has something to say that's central to our mission as individual Christians. You just got to do the work to understand it. All right, let's jump in. This is the first verse. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now that's, there's so much information packed in this one sentence that we have to pause here for a minute. It says he went away from there. So just to remind ourselves for those of you who weren't here last week, Jesus has been in Galilee doesn't say exactly where, but he's probably in Capernaum. That's kind of his home base of operations at this point in his ministry. And he was approached by Pharisees and scribes who came all the way from Jerusalem to confront him. 
So that means they came from the like religious and authoritative center of Israel. And they came all that way just to confront Jesus about stuff. And when they got there, what we saw last week is their complaint against him and his disciples is incredibly nitpicky. They want to talk to him about the fact that his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat, which isn't even something that's required by Old Testament law, just something that's part of their oral rabbinic tradition. And so Jesus has that exchange with them, and then it says that he goes away from there, and he moves in the opposite direction from Jerusalem up toward Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you are a Jewish person in the first century reading this story, Tyre and Sidon has significant symbolic force for you in your mind. The children's Bible way to summarize this would be Jesus went away from there and went to bad guy land. This is like, it's hard to imagine a worse place that still exists in the first century than this one. There's a few historical reasons. One of them is this the birthplace of Queen Jezebel, which if you're not even a Christian, then Jezebel is an idiom for a bad person, right? We're used to that term. But in Jewish history, in the Old Testament, she was the evil queen of the evil king Ahab. And they together, her in particular, were responsible for, for establishing Baal worship, this false pagan worship in the land of Israel. And she specifically is known as the like iconic killer of prophets, this person who stands against God and his will. And that's her birthplace, Tyre and Sidon. But it's also this symbol in the major prophets over and over again of like materialism and wealth and excess. And the reason for that is that they were Phoenician cities that were on the Mediterranean coast. And at the time of Jesus, they control a bunch of inland territory too. So that's more likely where Jesus is in this story. But because of their position, they were these centers of trade and wealth and materialism. And so over and over, you have prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah talking about how Tyre and Sidon represent like opulence and greed and resistance to God and his will. And there is prophecy after prophecy of judgment against them, including one that's specifically about the king of Tyre. And it's this, this like, it's called a taunt, a taunt against the king of Tyre. And in the prophecy, Ezekiel is just laying out all of these complaints against the king of Tyre and all of these curses and things that are going to happen to him because of his evil and resistance to God. And as the rhetoric in that passage builds, you start to realize, oh, we're not just talking about the king of Tyre anymore. Throughout the course of that oracle, the king of Tyre actually becomes a symbol of Satan himself, of the ultimate supernatural enemy of God, sort of like the king of Babylon does in the book of Isaiah, if you're familiar with that. So all that to say, we read Tyre and Sidon and they just sound like place names. The early readers of this book especially those of a Jewish background, which most of the first Christians had, they read that and go, why on earth is Jesus going to Tyre and Sidon? And then when he's there, he runs into an incredibly unlikely interaction. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So just like Tyre and Sidon are like, you know, emblematic of bad guy, bad place, bad people, bad situation, for her to not only be a Gentile, but to be identified as a Canaanite is incredibly dramatic. If you're familiar, again, with the Old Testament, you know that the Canaanites are the ancestral enemies of God's people. When they come into the Promised Land, the evil, pagan, child-sacrificing people group that lives in the land at that time, the people who Joshua and the Israelites are supposed to drive out, those are the Canaanites. So this woman's ancestry goes back at least 3,000 years to the evil, horrid, child-sacrificing peoples who lived in that place and were the ancestral enemies of Israel. So again, Jesus goes to bad guy land, and he, a Jewish rabbi, 
is approached by a woman who's not just a woman, but a Gentile, and not just a Gentile, but a Canaanite. And that's not even the weirdest thing about the situation. Because then she comes up to him, and she calls him Lord, son of David. Lord in Greek is just a term that um, it has a big range, and it's kind of ambiguous how intense it has to be. I mean, it can just be what you call like anyone who you have a lot of respect for. So it means something like master or Lord, as it's translated. But it also is a religious term in the mouths of Christians and Jews. So it's, it's ambiguous, and it's kind of ambiguous on purpose. At what level does she mean it? So it's already kind of weird that a Canaanite from Tyre and Sidon is calling this Jewish rabbi Lord. But then she calls him son of David. And this is much, much weirder. We're Christians, those of us in the room who are Christians, and so when we read the Bible and we see the term son of David, we're very used to that just being like one of Jesus's titles, right? So you go, oh yeah, son of David, that's just a thing you call Jesus. The thing is, up until the time of Jesus, son of David is an unbelievably Jewish term of respect. And not just a term of respect, you don't just apply this to anybody. The son of David is the promised offspring from the line of David who is supposed to lead and rule Israel and lead them out of oppression from their enemies. So even for a Jew in Israel to call someone the son of David had a really significant political overtone to it. It meant you're identifying this person as the messianic leader of Israel. Coming out of the mouth of a Canaanite woman in Tyre and Sidon, if you're reading the story, you'd almost be like, what, is, what does this woman mean? What does that title mean to her? How is she going to approach this Jewish rabbi and call him son of David? It's a Jewish title for a Jewish messianic leader. And she asks for mercy because her daughter is oppressed by a demon. And this is where Jesus starts acting very weird to us. But he did not answer her a word. We've seen over and over again, we're in Matthew 15 already, more than halfway through the book, and we've seen over and over again that when Jesus is confronted by people who have need, he heals them, he helps. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. In that situation, Jesus had just found out that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded by Herod the Tetrarch, and that Herod, this corrupt, evil king, now kind of has his eyes on Jesus. And so Jesus heard that news, and Matthew told us that he wanted to go and be alone. When he goes and tries to be alone, what ends up happening is a crowd of 5,000 people gathers around him. And we talked about this when we looked at that story, but most people would be like, you guys, can I just have a break? I just need a break. But instead, when he sees them, Matthew says that he's filled with compassion and he heals them and cares for them. That's what Jesus is like. So when this woman comes and asks for healing, you just assume, of course he's gonna heal her, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So his disciples are getting irritated by this woman who's following around, crying out for help. And they say to send her away, but what's interesting is that in the original language, and especially because of what Jesus' response is, what they're saying isn't just get rid of her. It's more like, just give her what she wants so she'll leave us alone. And you can tell that's what they're communicating because of Jesus' answer, right? He goes, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. So they're out of annoyance, like just heal her daughter so she'll go away. This is embarrassing and it's culturally incredibly uncomfortable to be followed around by this Gentile woman asking for help. Just give her what she wants so she'll leave. And Jesus answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So now you're like two layers into Jesus not being how you expect him to be. First, he ignores her, asking for help. Then, 
when the disciples are like, even if it's kind of out of irritation, they're like, do something about this. He goes, I'm here for Israel, here for the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. When he says that, he is using the exact same phrase that he used when he sent those same disciples on their mission, their first early mission to kind of go announce the arrival or the incoming arrival of the kingdom of God. He told them then, this is back in Matthew 12, he told them, go and say, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but don't go to Gentile cities. Go just to the lost sheep of Israel. Same exact phrase. Now, we're standing in a room, or I'm standing, you're all sitting in a room filled with mostly people who believe in Jesus who don't have Jewish background, right? Not a member of the lost sheep of Israel. I'm sure there's some in the room. Most of us are Gentiles. So you see Jesus say he's only there for the lost sheep of Israel. And you go, wait, you know, that doesn't quite compute. To understand what Jesus means by this and what he's doing at this point in his ministry, you have to have a, like a basic understanding of the kind of, at least the broad strokes of the story of God and humanity that lead up to this point, what you find in the Old Testament. So incredibly oversimplified overview. Genesis 1 and 2, we have God creating a good world, placing humanity in it as his image bearers, and giving this, them this commission to represent him on earth. It only takes one more chapter for all of that to go south, right? Genesis 3, humanity rebels against God. And the next several chapters, from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 11, you just have story after story of humanity, individuals and groups, nations, all deciding to rebel against God, to move against God, to reject him in every way possible. So that's the part of the Bible where you get stories like Cain and Abel, the flood, the Tower of Babel, all stories of humanity rejecting God, and rebelling against God. In Genesis chapter 12, God launches his rescue mission, and he does that by making a promise to a random childless man named Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. It's incredibly significant for the rest of the Bible. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God tells Abraham, I'm gonna give you a family. And that family is gonna become a nation. And I'm gonna bless that nation, but not just so that nation can keep all those blessings. I'm gonna bless that nation specifically so that they can then be a blessing to all nations. Israel doesn't even exist yet. Israel is going to be, you know, the, the descendants of this man. So it's not just a mission to bless Israel. It's a mission to bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring. So, long story short, is Jesus just interested in helping Israel? The answer is no. But during this phase in ministry, during these three years when he has come, because after this, the rest of the Old Testament, there's some high points, but for the most part, it's story after story of Israel failing to fulfill this, failing to do the things that God is asking them to do, to the point where they end up exiled, kicked out of the land, sent into Babylon for 70 years. And even when they're released and returned back into Israel, things are never the same. They're under the thumb of one empire after another until the time of Jesus when they're under the thumb of Rome. So Jesus is arriving, offspring of Abraham, this mission from the beginning to bless all the nations. From the get-go, that's been the plan. But the first thing he's doing, the thing he's doing during his earthly ministry before his death and resurrection is going to Israel to call them back to their vocation and to fulfill it on their behalf. And that's why you see in Jesus' earthly ministry, he doesn't travel very much. 
I mean, he doesn't go to like Athens or Alexandria or Rome or any of these places where you would anticipate this guy who's planning on changing the entire world would go. He stays in Galilee and Judea. That's it. Tiny little geographical area. So that's the context for this story. So when he says, I'm here just for the lost sheep of Israel, he means this is the phase of ministry that I'm in. The story goes on. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. Now this is, again, this incredibly poignant and beautiful and somewhat ambiguous moment. It says she knelt before him. And the Greek word for knelt, it's used a lot in, in this gospel. And more than half the time, it's not translated knelt, it's actually translated worship. So just last week, when we talked about Jesus walking on water, he gets back into the boat and the wind and waves cease and the disciples, the text says, worship him. Same word, proskuneo. It means to kneel down and it can mean to venerate or worship. It can also just mean to show humility and respect. It's the same thing that the wise men do before the child Jesus when they come to visit him. And so just like her calling him Lord and calling him son of David, there's some ambiguity here. Is she worshiping him or just showing extreme humility? And then she says just two words in Greek, Lord, help. It's this like tragic moment and it makes his answer even more brutal for us to read. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now there's a, like a kind of get out of jail free card that gets used here a lot that has to do with the word that Jesus used for dog. And, and it does matter, as we'll see in a second, but it's not enough by itself. So here's the deal. In the ancient world, like in much of the world today, dogs are not like a cute thing that you love and have as a part of your family, okay? That's the case in most of the world. I'm sorry, everyone. This is like the bad news part of... We always do good news. It's the gospel. The bad news today is that it's not normal historically for human beings to have dogs in their house that they think of as members of the family, all right? I feel like you guys aren't getting... This is the main point of the sermon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You might keep a dog, but if you kept a dog, it was because it was a security system for you. And that's how it is for my friends in Africa. That's how it is for my friends in Cambodia. Most of the world today, if you have a dog, it's because you're willing to feed it so that it will keep your family or your house or your property safe. But you don't have them as pets. In fact, most dogs are like scavenger, street wanderer. They're kind of dangerous, kind of gross, especially if you're a Jewish person. They're unclean. I mean, this is a gross animal. And so, the interesting thing here is that when Jesus says it's not right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, he doesn't use the normal Greek word for dogs. He uses the diminutive form of the word for dogs. And the way we would do that in English is to either call them little dogs or call them doggies, right? A doggy sounds like silly and kind of infantile in a way that it doesn't in Greek, but that's the same idea being communicated. It's not just the word for dog, it's the word for little doggies. And so the argument goes, well, Jesus isn't being disrespectful here because he doesn't call her dog. He says, little doggies. And if that's enough to satisfy you, awesome. But it doesn't really work for me to be like, you know what? Jesus didn't call her a dog. He called her a little dog. You know what I mean? <laughs> it does matter. You're going to see in a second, in my, I really believe that it does matter that he chose to use that, but it's not enough. If you want to know why this isn't how it sounds, it has nothing to do with just the specific words he uses. It has to do with the purpose of what he's doing as a whole. It has to do with the entire interaction and how it works and what it's for. So if you stop and you get hung up on the word dogs, you don't even make it through to see you at the back and forth. Here's the whole interaction. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This woman's response shows that she understands what Jesus is doing. She doesn't receive it as a rejection, get out of here. She receives it as an invitation to engage. And there's a few reasons why you can see that. So she doesn't respond in like a impudent, like, you know, you're trying to send me away, but I'm gonna keep on asking over and over. She responds in a way that's actually incredibly witty, especially in the original language. So he kind of paints this imaginative picture, which is meant to make one point. There's priorities here. Children should be fed. It's not right to feed dogs if the children don't have enough food to eat. And her response steps into that same kind of imaginative space that he's created. And she responds with this kind of like wit and cleverness that actually really makes you like her. So what she says, I told you already that Jesus uses the diminutive form of the word dogs. She does that also. But then she also uses the diminutive form of the word crumbs, which is kind of funny because it's already a word that means small things. So it's almost, again, it's not as silly as this makes it sound, but it's almost like Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the little doggies. And she responds by saying, yes, Lord, but even the little doggies eat the little crummies that fall from the table. You see what she's doing? Again, it doesn't sound that silly, but the idea is that she's sort of like in a witty way playing off of his words. And that helps you to sort of see the tone that this conversation probably actually has. We tend to read it, and because it's written out in text, we picture like a very austere Jesus being like, away with you, for I will not give my food to little dogs, right? But her response shows there's like a witty back and forth happening. And this is hard for us, because when something's just written down, it's really hard to tell what tone it's being said in, right? And some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, because you text message with people who don't go far enough to make it clear what they mean. You know what I'm talking about? I'll give you the quintessential example, and this one's totally autobiographical. My wife wouldn't mind me sharing. Let's say, hypothetically, that you text your spouse something like, I'm running a little bit late, but I'm on my way now. And your wife responds, okay. No punctuation, just the two letters, okay. Now you're gonna have to look at that and go, well, this could mean literally anything. <laughs> like if it's okay, period, then I know the person's upset and, that, and I gotta do something about it. If it's okay, exclamation point, then it means no problem, that's fine. If it's like, okay, exclamation point, like, thumbs up, explosion emoji, then you're like, we're totally good. But if you just get okay with no period, no exclamation point, you have no idea what to do with that. I'll give you a real life example from this morning. This is like the most meta example ever, by the way. This is so meta. This morning I texted Isaac and I said, hey, when you talked previously about like how important tone is in the text, did you use text messaging as an example? And he responded, no. No, no punctuation, no period, no exclamation, no. It wasn't no, but that's a great idea. It wasn't no, but I wouldn't do that. Just no. So just like these words, the tone is totally ambiguous. And you have to like try to read the whole situation and see what's there. The other example that Isaac used that I think is, is a perfect example of this is in the Fellowship of the Ring at the very beginning of the movie. When Gandalf arrives in the Shire, you remember what happens? Frodo comes out. What does Frodo say? That only one person answered, and that's really disturbing at South Valley Community Church. <laughs> Frodo says, you're late. And you have to say it like that, because that's how he says it. And you remember what Gandalf says back to him? A wizard's never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And he said, and if you just saw that written, or even the way he says it at first, it almost seems like he's like trying to put Frodo in his place. 
But then you see the twinkle in his eye and they both kind of start to smile and they crack and there's laughter and you realize they're having like a familiar, intimate, positive interchange. You read this and it could sound like no bread for dogs, but her response and the wit of it and then especially his response at the end make it really clear that's not what's going on. It's much more natural to read this as a invitation to Socratic dialogue and that's how the woman receives it. So Jesus says, hey, is it right? And, and by the way, the context that sets this up is very important. Remember, she called him son of David. Okay, Gentile Canaanite woman called me son of David. Then the disciples, who don't care about her and also don't even care about the cultural boundaries that are getting broken, just for the sake of their own kind of selfish like discomfort, they're like, just heal her so she'll go away. And so Jesus turns to her and goes, hey, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she comes right back with, yes, you're right. But if you're the master, there's enough bread even for the dogs. And Jesus' response is like, yes. Oh, woman, great is your faith. And woman, by the way, again, in our culture, that seems like it's kind of like cold or derogatory, but it's not. It's actually familiar and positive. It's exactly the way that Jesus addresses his own mother. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. If Jesus had just been intending to say, no bread for Gentile dogs, this is not how the story would have gone. Jesus knew from the get-go that he was going to heal her daughter. But the way he chose to do it was to invite her to engage with him as a master rabbi so that he could teach not just her, but the disciples. In fact, maybe first and foremost, the disciples. He wants to have this engagement in a way that teaches them an incredibly important lesson. And that lesson is, I may be here first for the house of the lost sheep of Israel, but make no mistake, there is plenty of bread for everyone. And if you don't think that's the point that Matthew, the disciple, took away from this story, look at the very next story that follows it. It's the very next verse. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So Jesus went up to Tyre and Sidon, comes back down to Galilee. But Mark tells us he didn't just go anywhere in Galilee, he came back down to the Decapolis, to the Gentile side. Sea of Galilee has a predominantly Jewish side, a predominantly Gentile side. Mark tells us explicitly that he went to the Gentile side, but Matthew has his way of telling us too. Because after Jesus heals this massive crowd, it says they glorified the God of Israel. Why do you say it that way? Because that's not their God. It's an incredible, incredible follow-up to that story. Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon, Canaanite woman, calls him the son of David, says there's plenty of bread for everyone. Jesus goes, your faith is great, heals her, and then goes into a Gentile region and heals a giant crowd. And if that's not enough, the very next story after this one is the story of Jesus feeding the crowd of 4,000 people, all in a Gentile environment, still in the same region. So just retrace our steps real quick. Jesus is in Galilee on the Jewish side. Pharisees from Jerusalem. Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem are basically the exact opposite of a Canaanite woman from Tyre and Sidon. So Pharisees and scribes come from Jerusalem, reject Jesus on the most like nitpicky, unimportant basis imaginable. Jesus leaves, 
goes to Tyre and Sidon, to bad guy land, meets a Canaanite woman, and she, in their interaction, says, I know you're here for the lost sheep of Israel, but there is enough bread for everyone. Jesus says, great is your faith. And then goes and heals a giant crowd of Gentiles and then goes and feeds a crowd. Literal bread. Look at how that story ends. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. A couple weeks ago, when we talked about the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, we talked about how seven is this number that in the, in the Jewish mind means completeness, fullness, perfection. And so when Jesus has seven baskets of leftover bread, what's being communicated is when I come and give bread to the nations, to the Gentiles, there is more than enough for anyone. It's like he's putting the perfect bow on this interaction with the woman. And that stories flow in exactly that sequence. There is plenty of bread when Jesus is the master. But there's something else that Matthew, the author of this gospel, <clears throat> and Matthew's first readers would have understood about this story. As they're reading it, they would add something else in their mind, something that for them was the marching orders of Christians, still is for us. And that's the closing verses of Matthew's gospel. I don't mind showing them to you now because it's probably going to take us like another 14 years to get there in our series. This is the way the gospel of Matthew ends. And Jesus came and said to them, this is after his death and resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 2,000 years before this, God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless your family so that your family can be a blessing for all nations. During Jesus' three years of earthly ministry, he says, I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel. But after his death and resurrection, he sees the next phase in the mission of God sending his church out to the nations to deliver that good news, to hand out that bread. And what's so amazing about this story and what I still don't fully even understand about it is this Canaanite woman in Tyre and Sidon gets this somehow. And we have no idea why she does or how she learned this. But she doesn't come to him as like anonymous miracle worker from Galilee that I heard about. She comes to him and says, Lord, son of David, Jewish Messiah. And her request shows she doesn't just think of the Jewish Messiah as the savior of the Jewish people who are going to rescue them from Rome. Somehow she knows that the Jewish Messiah is the savior of all peoples. And it's like she's coming to him to say, Lord, son of David, and to kneel before him and say, I'll, I'll make you my king now, and I want that future reality that you're going to bring to all the nations now. Heal me, help me, be my king now. And the beautiful thing is Jesus receives that. He goes, great is your faith. And he heals her daughter. So this story is not only not offensive in the way that it sort of comes across at a first reading as a modern person, it actually is communicating the exact opposite of what it sounds like at first. It's not a story about Jesus being kind of standoffish because someone's a Gentile. He's coaxing her into an interaction so that he can make the point that he is there for all nations. And if you're a Christian, those are your marching orders. The first Christians heard this story and they already knew this part. 
because they were trying to live it out. And so when they see Jesus interacting with this woman, they don't have all those same tensions that we bring to the text. They would see in it an example of the fact that Jesus is the Savior of all peoples, all nations. So see this as your marching order. Preston Sprinkle, a theologian who I like, talks about how Christians are just beggars showing other beggars where to find the bread. And that image is there in all of these stories, that you as a Christian, you're the person who has received bread that you do not deserve. And then you're sent out to go and give that same bread out to others. And here's the beautiful good news. As a Christian, if you're like me, you're one of the billions of Gentile Christians in the world, the Bible is very clear. You're not like a second-class citizen, like a little puppy dog sitting under the table hoping to get salvation via little crumbs that fall off the table. Jesus takes little dogs and turns them into sons and daughters of God. Look what Paul says very famously in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul looks back to that promise to Abraham 2,000 years ago and says, if you're in Christ, Jew or Gentile, then you are a part of that promise. You receive the blessings and benefits of that promise. You receive the commission of that promise to receive blessings so that you can be a blessing. And then personally, he says this in Romans 8. It's incredibly beautiful. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, that ending shows how you are called, when you're saved, you're called into the vocation of Jesus to suffer with him for the sake of the gospel, to bring it out to the nations. But before that, he says, listen, if you are in Christ, it's not slavery, certainly not a dog under the table, You are adopted as sons and daughters of God. You call him father now. You're an heir alongside Jesus. When you come to Jesus, it's like a chair is pulled out for you at the table of God, a place purchased for you by your faithful, wonderful older brother, Jesus. And you're a full member of the family, full member. And so some of you, part of the reason why reading the story is painful is because you see that interaction and it feels like what you expect from Jesus when you come to him. Like he's gonna avoid you and then he's gonna push you in some way and then he's gonna find things to nitpick about you that you're not the right kind of person. If you misunderstand this story, that's part of why it can be so painful. But when you see in it, Jesus is inviting this woman into this dialogue with him to expose his plan for the nations. And then you see in the words of Paul, you trust in Jesus Everybody's a family member, a son or daughter of Christ, eating the spiritual bread that is the broken body of Jesus. And so I want to invite you to join me as we do something that Christians have done from the very beginning, which is come to the table of God and in remembrance of Jesus, we eat the bread that saves us, the bread that brings us into his family. And we remember the broken body of Jesus that paid for our place at that table. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had broken it, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for a new covenant, for the remission of sins. Father, when I think of the sacrifice of your son and how it is, has bought us a place in your family such that I can even come to you and say, Father, as Paul says, Abba. It's family. There are no dogs in the kingdom of God hiding under the table just hoping for scraps. Everyone has a seat. Everyone has a plate. There is an abundance of food that never runs out because of the broken body of your son on our behalf. So Lord, I pray that everyone in here who calls your son Lord would feel that sense of belonging in your family, would feel that sense of place, that there is a seat at the table for them, that there is a meal set before them that is for them because you love them. And then I pray that that would fill us up with the strength and energy to remember that we are not called just to wait for you to return, but to go out and give out that bread to the world because you desire all nations to be a part of your family. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.